Welcome to the Revelation Church podcast. We trust today's message will speak to you. If you'd like to get in touch, just drop us an email at hello at revelationchurch.org.uk. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, the, the passage will come up on the screen if you don't have a Bible with you. And we're going to be reading from verse 13 down to the end of chapter 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed Brothers, about those who are asleep. And when he uses that word asleep, he's talking about Christians who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. Thank you that we get to this passage today. In your wisdom and your timing, Lord, you know what we need to hear and when. I want to pray that you would particularly minister to those who are here today and who have got questions about death, who have lost someone dear to them recently, who for whatever reason, Lord, death is one of those subjects that is very close to home right now. I want to pray for the ministry of your spirit through these words. We pray for much strength, much strength to come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tom, mate, could you close that door? Is that okay? Thank you. So I'm going to just read to you a little quote here from one of the commentaries on um, 1 Thessalonians to give a little bit of context. Why, why does Paul suddenly go here? It's quite out of the blue. He's not been talking about this up to now. He's not built up to it. He just introduces it in the moment. Why does he do that? Well, this is what Leon Morris says. uh, And the word parousia here, or parousia, pronounce it how you will, means the return of Jesus. Okay? That's That's what the word means. So when I read that, you think, what's that mean? It means Jesus' return. Some of the Thessalonians had evidently understood Paul to say that all who believed would see the parousia. Some believers had died. Did this mean that they would be at a disadvantage when the Lord came? Had they forfeited their share in the wonderful happenings of the end? Some may even have felt that these deaths discredited the whole idea of the parousia. So what's probably happened is in, the, in the, probably the weeks, really, that since Paul has had to move on from Thessalonica because of persecution, he's had to leave. And we've looked at that as we've gone through this letter. He's been really concerned about them and wanting to make sure they're doing okay. He only had a few weeks with them. Uh, and now he's writing to them, probably from Corinth. Um, it wouldn't have been long since he was there. But, but in between that time, there have been deaths among the church. And it's raised this question for them. And and they're trying to piece together what Paul said about the return of Jesus and this expectation of waiting for his return 
And now these people have died and they're going, oh, what does this mean? Does it mean that they are not going to be involved in the new heavens and the new earth? Does it mean that the whole thing is kind of sort of defunct? That it was, a, it was, a, it was, this has blown it. What, what? It's, it's because when people die that are close to you, whether, whether you start to spin out on this matter or not, very often you will spin out on something. And we're going to look at why at the end. But when people die, and people do die, and we in our part of the world are very closeted from much of what others in the world experience in terms of high rates of infant mortality, low rates of uh, health and um, inoculations, so many dying, in, in, maybe not at birth, but many dying in their younger years, wars, conflicts, we're actually very, very kind of, um, we're very protected from a lot of what people in many parts of the world experience. And some of you here in this room may well have experienced in your own, uh, in your own upbringing. Um, but when people die that close to us or happens in a way that we weren't expecting, it can be very disorientating. You heard the very sad news just this week of a, a young lady who... Very tragically, surprisingly, teenager passed. Very no previous kind of health complications, kind of known to some of our young people. How do you make sense of it? And then you have the stories in the Bible of the resurrections, don't you? Of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and others throughout the Book of Acts. And you go, does that still happen today? Well. I I would say there's nothing in the Bible to say that it doesn't. And you hear stories that it does. I've never seen it personally, but I wouldn't want my lack of experience to determine whether God does it or not. So for sure, for sure. But, but not always. And even when it does, those people then die. So Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he's not still around. Okay? <laughs> they die afterwards. Okay? So it's so important that we teach each other how to die well that we learn in the church how to die well because most of us will face it. Most of us will be alongside loved ones uh, when, they, when they go. Some people don't experience this till they're in their 60s. Maybe they're an only child, they've got no siblings, maybe their parents are very healthy, maybe they have a small circle of friends who are very healthy. They never experience bereavement until they're in their 60s and their parents are in their 80s and die. Others can't remember a time without bereavement. Our life experience is very, very different. But it's so important that as believers, we talk about this subject and that we learn to die well, no matter how bizarre that phrase might sound. If we don't, we could find ourselves caught out. We could find ourselves burying our head in the sands. That is not a good thing. Now, Paul's purpose here is to encourage them so that they might encourage one another. So again, just a little aside here, he's teaching them and at the end he says, therefore encourage one another with these words. God gives preachers and teachers and the like to the church, not in order to spoon feed a passive people that sit there and don't know what to do unless they're hearing a sermon. The idea is, is that they hear the truth, they absorb it and by the power of the Holy Spirit, they work it into their lives, they massage it into their lives and then they massage it into the lives of one another. They, it is a body which builds itself up in love, amen? 
And so the truth that you hear when we preach like this on a Sunday and other times when you receive kind of stuff from the Word of God, it's so that you can encourage one another with these words. It's so that when you're just going about your daily business with other believers or when you're meeting in running partners or when you're meeting in small groups or when you're having coffee before or after the service or when you bump into someone that you can be an encouragement to that person. That as a result of bumping into you, their day is better rather than worse. Amen. If you're having a bad day, you can still be a blessing to someone. Anyone believe that? Yeah. All right. That's really keen for that one. You guys have lots of bad days or something out there. But Paul says this, I, I, want you, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul's saying, when you grieve, it's going to be different from those who have no hope. It's going to be different from those who aren't believers. Now, in what sense? I want us to look at in what sense that is. How are we to mourn. The phrase he uses is not like those who have no hope. What is hope? Well, hope, Christian hope, is a sure and certain confidence about the future, particularly life beyond the grave. That's what Christian hope is. Okay, It's when you live with a sense of uh, confidence about how things are going to work out in the end. It's not vague. It's not, you know, hope is often used as a hope for the best. Christian hope is not that. It's sure and certain. It's an anchor for the soul. Hallelujah. Yeah? One has gone before us into the most holy place and he sprinkled his blood in that most holy place in heaven. He's there, gone, gone there as a forerunner. He lives to intercede for us. He's conquered death, right? He's defeated all of the enemies. He's won and he is our friend. Amen. Right? And, he, and as a result of him being there and us being in him and connected to him, we live with this confidence about the future so that when brothers and sisters fall asleep, i.e. when they die, we don't mourn as those who have no hope. Now, if you, got, if you took this in a bit of a weird way, you could go a bit super spiritual and, and say, we don't mourn. That's not what he's saying. Okay, He's not... He's not advocating some kind of stoic approach where you go, no, I'm confident in the Lord, therefore I'm not mourning. That, that is not a biblical Christian response when you lose someone. Let's look at what is. Um, let's look at the book of Philippians. I'm so pleased that I'm just so happened this week to make a decision. I'm going to read Philippians in my devotional um, because I've just finished, uh, where was I? Uh, Amos. I thought, Philippians, next, don't ask me why. must have been the kindness of God, because there's some great stuff in here about this. Let's look at two uh, sections. First, Philippians 1, where Paul says this, Philippians 1, verses 21 to 26. He says, um, to, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose. I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Incredible. Now, when you hear this stuff, you can find yourself thinking, man alive, does this man have titanium in his veins and not blood? Like, this guy's impenetrable. You know, I don't, I'm not sure I want to hang out with him. Like, he's just like, he's like he, just, he just walk, he just keeps walking, just keeps walking. He's like terminated. You think, I can't do that. But then look at chapter two. This is wonderful. Look at chapter two. 
before we get the wrong idea about Paul, chapter 2, verse 25, he says this. I thought it was necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you and he's been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Ah, he's not so impenetrable, is he? If Epaphroditus had died, Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow, which shows us that to have sorrow upon sorrow is not the same as mourning as those who have no hope. How does it work? Here's how it works. When you know the Lord and someone that knows the Lord dies, you have sorrow upon sorrow. Why? Because you feel the gap. But you know what? They're fine. In fact, they're just fine. They're having a great time. When you have no hope, there's that sense of total blank loss. They've gone. For, it's just there's a nothingness. There's a numbness. There's a, well, the opposite word of hope is despair, right? You go, Sorrow upon sorrow is just that you know that person has left a huge gap in your life. Life will never be the same. Life will never be the same. In the early days, it will be probably consuming and overwhelming. But even as the years and decades go on, there'll be those moments where you go, ah. That's not inappropriate for a Christian. That's called being human. Okay? We feel it. When we lose those that are dear to us. The only way to avoid that is to not get close to anyone. That's the only way to escape that. So if you're building relationally in life, these moments will come your way. And there is grace for you when they come. Okay? But it will be sad. And you might well describe it at times as sorrow upon sorrow. And you know what? It's okay. It's okay. God knows. God cares. God is a God of all comfort. But you won't necessarily, you won't just, it won't, bounce, it won't bounce off of you, and rightly so. Now, Paul's main aim here, as he goes into the teaching about Jesus' return, is his main aim is not uh, really that they get good doctrine. His main aim is for their comfort and encouragement. And the purpose of good doctrine is that you believe healthy, right stuff, so you're able to live healthy and right. Okay? It's not so you can be right. The yeah, purpose, purpose of having good doctrine is not so you can be right and win arguments, amen? Yeah, it's so you can live right. Yeah, so that you can walk in the truth. The truth sets us free. We live in that, right? That's the purpose of it. So, and I'll, I'll make a particular point of saying that, number one, because it's in the text, but number two, because this subject of the Lord's return, believers can get, believers can get lively about it in their disagreements, Right? Listen, this is a complicated theological subject. There are some elements of the Lord's return and the end times where I'm going, I'm not quite sure where I've landed yet on that. That's, that's going to probably take me to about probably just before I pop my clogs. Or, you know, that's fine. I'm okay with that. But there are certain things that we need to know and the stuff in the text that there's actually very, very clear. But that is the goal, okay, of good doctrine. 
Um, so he says this. I love the way he starts. He says, he, he builds the whole thing on the gospel. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so. It's all based on the gospel, okay? We believe Jesus died and we believe he rose again, therefore, okay? If you're here wondering, what do fundamentally these people believe? Jesus died and he rose again, okay? That's what we believe. He died for our sins. He died in our place. He died, and in that defeat, he disarmed all the destructive, negative um, spiritual powers through that extraordinary, voluntary, sacrificial act on the cross. No one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord, amen? Yeah? He laid it down and he picked it up, okay? His, his resurrection was the vindication that he is who he said he was. The death had nothing on him because he had no sin in him because he was the spotless lamb of God who was sacrificed for the sins of the world. Hallelujah. Because of that, because of him, because of our faith and trust in the crucified, risen Savior, our sins are forgiven and his resurrection life flows into us so that we are born again and given a brand new heart, which is the promise of one day a brand new body that will fit that heart. Amen. Right? That's what we believe. Okay? When you believe that, because it's true, because it's the gospel, not an idea, a suggestion, a way, because it's true, because it's God's gospel, God's truth, God's way of saving humankind, okay, you get saved. Okay? When you believe that, because it's God's way of saving humankind, you get saved. You are rescued from the power of sin. You are rescued from the pollution of sin. You are rescued from the penalty of sin. Hallelujah. You are reconciled to God. You are made right with God as a gift. God declares you righteous from the moment you close with Christ in faith. God declares you righteous. You can never be more righteous than that until the day you die, no matter how many prayer meetings you go to. Hallelujah. Okay? Righteousness is the gift that is given to us through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the only one who is truly righteous by his own merit. That's the message. That's what we believe. We preach it every week. We love it. We sing about it. We live in the good of it. So there it is. Right, let's get into this then. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even though through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep or will not be before those or will not have an advantage over those. The Greek can be taken in different ways. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. There was a moment before the cross where Jesus cries out these words, Lazarus, come forth. The power of those words instantly resurrected a man that had been dead for four days. That's the power of Jesus' cry of command. Okay? There will suddenly be a cry of command. Come forth. It's the completely unique voice of the risen and exalted Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, the one who's got the keys to death and Hades, the one who has all authority and all power. When he cries, come forth, that is the moment. It will be utterly awe-inspiring. It will be terrifying. It will be delightful. Some will cry out for the rocks to fall on them. In that moment, some would rather anything than see the face of the one whose voice they've just heard. Others will go, home time. It will be that start. There will be no grey. It will be black or it will be white. It's this or it's that. 
You're either living for it or you hate the idea of it because of what it represents. Because it doesn't just represent home time for believers. It represents that moment where every wrong will be put right and where the secrets of every heart will be disclosed and where each of us will need to give an account of deeds done in the body, words spoken, how we have lived our lives. Okay. It's the day of reckoning. You think, how can you look forward to that? Here's how I can look forward to that. That before that day, I have, as we sung earlier, Lord, my heart is open. Nothing here is hidden. I've brought all the dirty washing out. All of it. In all of its vileness. And I've laid it at the foot of the cross. I've owned that. I've said, yeah, busted. Guilty as charged. Before that day. And the Bible says that this age we live in is the age of salvation, not judgment. So when you do that, God does not judge you. He saves you. He lifts that burden and makes you right with him as a gift. But if you decide you've got another way of going about it or another way of justifying yourself before God or another way of salvation, then you, you are then left before the throne of God to explain to him why that is going to work. So we get the cry of command, then we get the trumpet. The, the commentators are somewhat disagreed as to whether you know, these things are three things, two things, one thing, because Paul just, the way it's grammatically, it can, it can work in either way. But you get, the, you get the cry of command from the Lord. Then you get the voice of an archangel. Then you get the sound of the trumpet of God. And remember sounds of trumpets all through the Old Testament, don't you? And they're going around, they go around the walls of Jericho, don't they? And on the seventh day, what do they do? They blow the trumpets and they shout. And what happens? The walls come down. This is the moment where every, every false idea, every ideology set up against the knowledge of God, every dark thing, every construct of evil, every construct of duplicitous, hidden, dark, all of that comes tumbling down in that moment. Hallelujah. Finally. All the nonsense, all the charades, all the lies, all the half-truths, all the dark nonsense, all the narratives that you don't know, what, who, what, all of that, it comes down. And everything is shown exactly for what it is under the light and the glory of God. It's glorious. Now, in that moment, if you're a... If you're a a dead Christian, what's going to happen? Okay? Because this might be true for some of you. Okay? He might not come in the next few years. And you, this might be very relevant for you. This might be very relevant for all of us. Okay? We don't know the day or the hour. Either this. Their souls already being with him consciously will return to the earth with him as he returns and their bodies at that shout, their bodies will be resurrected. Now you go, but what if what all kinds of gruesome details of how different people die? No, listen, right? the Bible is clear that it's, it works like an acorn on a tree. Yeah, resurrection body, similar idea to an acorn on a tree. So when your body goes into the ground, okay, and we put an acorn in, what comes out is totally different, right? Yeah, so it's like that. So no matter how you died and all of that and all that, how long you've been dead and all of the gruesome stuff we're not going to go into, okay? It's gone, in, it's gone somehow into the ground. What will come out will be 
well, the comparison Paul uses is acorn and oak tree. Okay, it's a completely glorious, different thing. In that moment, that will be raised and their, their souls will be united with their resurrected bodies. Okay? Following me? And then immediately following this, believers who are still alive, as they hear the trumpet blast, will also ascend and will be instantly changed and glorified through the impact of seeing Jesus face to face. It all happens in an instant. The cry of command, the trumpet blast, the voice of the archangel, seeing Jesus, because the Bible says when we see him as he is, we will be like him. Okay, And so how it works if you are alive when this happens is we, we find out about in 1 Corinthians 15. It says this, I tell you, brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. This next, um, this, no, I won't do that. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So we won't all die. Not all Christians will die before he comes, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, there it is again, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Woo! So, that, so it's that, right? That's, that's right. Option two. We got excited about option one. You want oh, option one? Don't need to option two. Something called soul sleep. The idea of soul sleep is this, is that when you fall asleep in Christ, when you die, you won't consciously be with the Lord, but it'll be a little bit like, you know those times where you have a really good night's sleep and you're sort of, you're, you're totally exhausted and you crash out and then you go, and then you wake up and you go, oh, I've been like, it was a few seconds and it was like eight hours. Yeah? No awareness of what went on, but time went like that. So option two is that there's like this kind of soul sleep, sort of kind of, uh, idea that you're, that you're not consciously with the Lord, um, but then as you're sleeping, you know, like, you know, very often when you're sleeping and the, the voice comes to wake you, it's really annoying, isn't it? You know, like, school time, shut up, you know, all that, no names mentioned, right? But this isn't going to be that, right? This is going to be, this is going to be, wake up, like, boom, in the instant you hear it, you are totally glorified and with the Lord face to face. Oh, my goodness. Now, I think it's probably the form. I think it's probably option one. And the reason I say that is, is that Paul says things like that to be with the Lord would be much better. Talking about death before his return. How would it be better if you're just totally unconscious, not aware? You know, I'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, you know. So I do think option one is probably the stronger option uh, biblically. But I want, I want anyone ever... When you were a kid, your favourite aunt, you had a favourite auntie or a favourite uncle? Yeah, mum was Uncle Percy, my favourite uncle. He had, he had these slippers with no backs on them and, and, and he'd sit in his armchair and he'd throw his slippers onto his feet like that. I thought it was the best thing in the world. And he taught me how to do an owl hoot with his hands. And these things, as you're a kid, you're like, this is amazing, right? Anyone ever a favourite uncle, favourite auntie? Yeah. Now, you remember those times when you knew they were going to be visiting, Right? And you were by the window. Remember those? 
Uncle Percy's coming. Yeah? And then they come around the corner. And imagine, maybe, maybe you're not old enough to go out by yourself loads, but you're old enough to kind of go out a bit. And what you, what you do when you see him come around the corner, what do you do? Open the door. You run out. Yeah, cuddle. And then you go walk with them. You don't then go off somewhere. What do you do? You walk with them home. Now, just to say, this idea of Jesus' return and in bringing, bringing with him those who have slept in Christ, and then we will meet him in the air, okay? We don't then go off somewhere. Where do we go? Where do we go? Where do we come? Earth. It's a new heavens and a new earth. Okay? Now, some people believe in something called a, a thousand-year millennial reign whereby... whereby Jesus will reign on earth before, before the end. Others say, no, it happens straight away. Today, I'm not going to get into that. Okay? But the, 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 the thing I want you to understand is we go to meet him in the air and greet him. It's you. You're here. right? And then he says, yeah, come on. And we go, like with Uncle Percy, we come home with him. Yeah? Onto a brand new heaven and a brand new earth. Renewed. Renewed, glorified. We will always be with the Lord, he says, face to face, tears wiped away, new body, new creation. Isn't it wonderful? We believe in this. Now, I want to end before we sing a song, just, just very quickly. I want to, I want, because some of you here are going, this sounds like a fairy tale. It sounds like, what is sounds like madness. I want to ask you, what do you believe? Okay, it's a fairy tale. What do you believe? Not in an antagonistic way, I just want to ask you. Because if you say, well, I don't know, then, okay, it's fair enough. But if you haven't got something, a better option, then you might want to reflect on your reflections. It sounds like a fairy tale. Maybe you say, well, nothing happens when you die. I just want to put to you, I think that that is so out of kilter with the human experience. That it's just death, it's inevitable, and it's fine. It's clearly not fine. Death is clearly not fine. Why do we spend millions on fighting cancer and other disease? Why, why do we have that? Why do we cry and weep like we do when someone dies? We can tell ourselves. We can create a philosophical thing to make ourselves feel better. But deep down, we know the truth. Death is an enemy. Death is not part of God's natural order. Death is an enemy. Death is an enemy that Jesus has defeated at the cross and at his resurrection. Okay. So we need, you need, we need to be honest about the, the, the reality of what we know deeper than we, we know because we know because we know. I think this is true. And there are so many other different ideas people have about death. But I want to just say this. In Christian teaching on this, every base is covered. Number one, your personal identity is valued and preserved. When you were created, you were created to live forever. That's an extraordinary thought. One way or another, the Bible seems to teach that all people will be conscious forever whether in heaven or whether in hell. That is the, that is the biblical teaching. Okay. It seems to definitely, definitely clear that eternal consciousness in glory with the Lord for believers, and I would say definitely, I would say leans towards eternal consciousness in hell. You do not, that, and, and the whole thing, I want to be in my hell, I want to be in my mates. No, that is not what hell is. That is not what hell is. Hell was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. You do not want to go there. The devil doesn't rule there. Jesus rules there. The devil and his angels are cast into it. It was prepared for them. But if, if you reject Jesus Christ, if you reject the Lord, the King, the one who 
created you and gave you life, if you just get on as if, I don't know, somehow he doesn't matter, you've got to think that through. You've got to think through what justice might look like on the part of God. We've got to reckon with this. This is serious. So your personal identity is valued and preserved. Justice is done. In this framework, justice is done. Everyone will be held to account. So you think about people that have lived the most outrageous lives and no one found out what they were doing until they had died and everyone's going, where is justice? I'll tell you when there's going to be justice. <laughs> there will be justice. There will be justice. When you think of people that, you know, they've literally done the most out- outrageous and awful things. The day is coming where every, everyone will have to give an account. If it's, and if it was justice, all of us are in trouble. If it's justice, I'm in massive trouble. Okay, I'm not confident on that day because I'm confident on that day because of mercy and because of the blood of Jesus. Solely, that's my only claim. Number three, death is defeated, which I said we all know deep down death is wrong. Number four, paradise is realized. What is this? If we, if, if we just sort of all came from this primordial soup and, you know, it's kind of like, I don't know, it, it, it's all just been nature, you know, red in tooth and claw and just destruction and death and things are gradually getting better. But it's just been like, what is this sense of paradise lost we live with? What is that? It's a crazy thing. It makes no sense. It's there because it was there. <laughs> it's there because it's a historical reality. That our, our first mother and father were in the Garden of Eden in paradise. And finally, it works because, listen, the planet's restored. The planet's restored. This planet that we live on, that we love and care, that everyone loves and cares about, will be restored, will be renewed. The wording makes it unclear whether it's talking about a brand new heavens and a brand new earth or a renewed heavens and a renewed earth. But it's going to be, an, it's going to be sparkly. Put it that way. That's an untheological term for you. <laughs> it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. So, listen, if you don't, if you, I want to say to you, this doctrine, this body of teaching is feasible. It works. It holds together. It holds together, and I want to encourage you to look into this Jesus uh, and find out if he be true. Amen?